Welcome to the Vitality Shift Podcast for Chiropractors. I'm your host, Dr. Don McDonald, author of the best-selling book, The Underdog Curse. Weekly, we will be interviewing amazing chiropractors from around the world, finding out how they made their vitality shift. If you're a chiropractor that either wants to just move your practice away from treating pain and conditions, or if you just want to stay inspired, this podcast is for you. For more information on past shows, please visit www.drdonmcdonald.com, and I hope you enjoy the show. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Vitality Shift for Chiropractors. This is Dr. Don McDonald, your host, and today I get to shoot over to Boston, Massachusetts, where I get to talk to my next uh, guest, Dr. Martin Rosen. He's a graduate of Life College. As he said, it was back when it was a chiropractic college, uh, back in 1981, and uh, he's been in active practice all the way through, a master of technique. He, uh, he used to teach for the ICPA, and now he has his own seminars, I think, as he's getting into... Uh, uh, the less travel phase where I think he's hosting most of the seminars in his own town because him and his wife are a little bit tired of me and Brandy are in the, in the full swing of traveling over the world. And I can see how that gets a little bit tiring after a while. So <laughs> welcome Dr. Martin to the, to the podcast. How you doing Don? I'm doing amazing. Well, it's pretty cool because we, we got to meet you in real life um, at the wave uh, okay. this summer. And uh, we'd always heard lots of amazing stuff from um, Dr. Peter Kevorkian about you. And, and I'd always was, keeping an eye on your schedule of when your seminars are to when our travel schedule are. And we haven't been able to mix that up yet, but one of these times I'm coming to your seminar. All right. <laughs> so I just got to, I just got to book it far enough in advance that we don't have conflicts. But uh, yeah, you, you actually, um, we actually asked you to check out Brandy and, um, right. and uh, because Brandy was having kind of these occiput tension all the time and, and, um, and you kind of, uh, went full blast on her, <laughs> which was great because like we only had like one time to see her. Right. No holes barred in those kind of situations. Yeah. So she might've been cursing and swearing a little bit at you at the time, but, um, but it was really cool because those that follow Brandy on Facebook, we had kind of, uh, I'd taken a picture of her just out of the blue at lunch mm -hmm. right before that. And then we took a picture after and you could totally see the symmetry in her face. So um, I'm just very interested in getting into like how you got into chiropractic and we'll kind of go up through your career up till yeah. now. So, so let's start you off. Like, how did you even find out about chiropractic in the first place? Um, so my first chiropractic experience, I was around, oh, 19, I think it was. And um, I was living in upstate New York and friends of mine had just gone to this guy, chiropractor's name was Jim Spina. And I was working, I had dropped out of college. I went to school to be a lawyer. And when I decided that didn't fit my particular personality type um, at that point, so I dropped out of school and I was kind of in those days, you know, looking for myself, finding myself, and I ended up in upstate New York with some friends working in a metal fabricating plant as a welder, which oh, I knew wow. wasn't going to be a lifetime choice, but it was a partial choice. Anyhow, these friends had went to this chiropractor, Jim Spina. He was a very straight, um, principled chiropractor, and he said, you got to go see this guy. And I said, why? He said, you just got to go see him. And so we went, and he was just amazing. It was an old-fashioned office. He used to take all five of us, my friends all worked at the um, Cookway Fabricating Plant. We all went in the same room together, and he was, uh, his, his adjustment protocol was move it and innate will put it where it wants to. And yeah. he used to show these little videos. They were stick figure videos of you know how bad drugs were, and he always had these little pictures in his wall of the drugs and where they affected the brain. And in, in that time, I'm a child of the 60s, yeah. so we kind of grew up with that. So we always used to kid him and ask him, you know, can we have the drugs from the charts? And still get adjusted. But then, yeah, an amazing practice. Um, 
he would just adjust to all five of us in his room. His wife worked in the front office, and it was to pay what you could afford. It was that kind. It wasn't a box on the wall. You had to come up to his wife and give her whatever money you could afford. But it was my first experience. He never said much, showed us a couple of videos, and just adjusted us. And I actually remember sitting in his waiting room watching people go in and out and thinking to myself, you know, I feel great. This guy's doing a great job, but this has to be the most boring job in the world, just doing that. I remember that just <laughs> happening to me. And what's amazing is out of the five of us who went to see him back in, so I was 1976 or something like that. Right. Um, 70, yeah, no, 73, actually. Anyhow, three of us are still in the chiropractic care and have been that way for our entire lives. So his impact must have been incredible. And the oh. coolest part, just a quick, my daughter was up in upstate New York and was at a camping thing and she actually fell off the top bunk and hurt herself. I said, dad, I really hurt myself. You know, is there a chiropractor around here? And I went online and I found Jim Spina. It was his son. And so my daughter went to get adjusted by his son. So my first chiropractor's son adjusted my daughter. And I just thought that was kind of cool. That is really cool. Oh yeah. He turned me on. And the second chiropractor I saw was in New Jersey. Um, Joe D'Onofrio, a lot of people know who he is, and his son actually works at Sherman, and all his kids are, and he was just, again, a very straight principal chiropractor, and by the time I saw him, I was making the decision to go to chiropractic school. I had been living in California at the time, again, looking for myself. Um, I had this incredible, incredible job, which I know many of you will be very jealous about. I was on white walling tires at used car lots. Oh, wow. Another <laughs> career choice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Realizing that that wasn't going to make it. And honestly, I was walking back to my bedroom one day in San Francisco and this voice came into my head and it said, you should go to chiropractic school. And that was it. And it just, everything just changed right there. My, about two days after that happened, my grandmother had passed away and left me $5,000, yeah. um, which back then was several years of tuition. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so that was like good money back right. then. <laughs> As opposed to a week, you know, where it yeah. is now. But regardless, so it kind of fell in. So I moved back to um, the East Coast with um, the person, the woman I was living with, and started my prerequisites again and to go to chiropractic school. And then it just never stopped. That was just it. It was like this one voice. The money came. Um, the woman I was living with was from New Jersey, wanted to move back. Um, I paid, you know, I took all my prerequisites and I actually went to Sherman first. was my oh. first chiropractic school. I went to Sherman for a year back in the day when Joe Felicia was there and Guy Reekman and... Um, Reggie was coming down a lot and speaking and basically Joe D'Onofrio, when I was getting adjusted, when I asked him where to go to school, he would just keep adjusting me and saying, you have to go to straight school. He gave me like two choices, which was audio or Sherman. That was yeah. it. Every time he would adjust me, he did, it was like a mental imprint. I didn't have, I didn't know anything else about chiropractic. I didn't know they were mixed. I had no idea, but that's just my old, old experience. So I went to Sherman for a year where I met my wife, who mm -hmm. um, oh, I'm still married to. And we yes. met at Sherman. She was um, kind of a, a diehard chiropractic, philosophical nut. She had met um, Russell Grazier and went to a Sherman Lyceum like two years before. And that was it. Her best friend's father was a chiropractor. So they went to school together. So, um, And the reason we left Sherman was basically because we knew places where we wanted to practice. And back in 78, which is when I went to Sherman, um, places were closing where you could sit the board. And it was really just a matter of choice. I knew I didn't want to go to the states that were left. When I got to Sherman, there were 15 states open. By right. the end of the first year, there were only eight left. And since not really knowing anything about the politics, I just knew that I wanted to practice where I wanted to go. And the only two schools that would not make us start over were Life, East, and Palma. And I drove out to Palma with my wife and realized as a 
man from New York City living in the Midwest there was probably a little challenging for three years. Yeah. So Georgia was the clo- you know the best best choice, and so that's how we ended up at life. Oh, interesting. So yeah. going through uh, life, how was your experience? Like, how was your experience like uh, switching schools? Because that's kind of interesting. You get a little bit yeah, of both it's schools, funny right? You that. So as I said, my wife's best friend also came with us switching, and her father was an extremely straight chiropractor, and he used to read the green books at dinner table to them. So the first time we went to life and they suggested we buy an ophthalmoscope and a stethoscope, she lost it. And we were all, she just like over the deep end. And um, we all were like, what do we, you know, we were basically kind of pushing up against that philosophical, like, what do I need this? What do I have to do this for? Um, and, you know, being on special schedule at life, because it was a big school back then, kind of isolated you anyhow. So we had a small group that we kind of hung out with that, you know, we're philosophically congruent. Um, And I think that's just how we went through school that way, kind of with blinders on, you know, funny, you know, blinders on the side and just get, you know, what is it, cooperate and graduate? Yeah, yeah, do what you had to do to get A little less than cooperate. I mean, I got into the school. I I was a senior intern. Um, I was also lucky enough to be at Life when Larry Webster was there. So he was how my pediatric exposure came. He was running the clinic in downtown called Lucky Street. So Uh when I became a senior intern, which I don't know if you know what that is, but basically you take a test and then you can actually go into clinic, make your own adjustments without a doctor there. And you can also watch other chiropractors, other students make adjustments and you could sign off on their adjustments. It was oh, basically- So you're kind of like a staff doctor, sort of. Yeah, you're basically like a staff doctor or kind of staff doctor, but not really a doctor, but just basically called a senior intern. So I spent a lot of time working at what was called the Lucky Street Clinic downtown because that's what Larry ran the show. And- you know, it was just an amazing experience. Larry would just let you do whatever you needed to do to learn to be a chiropractor. And he was always there to answer questions. You know, it was, it was completely apolitical. It was really just a learning experience. You know, and sometimes he would adjust us. Or I remember I was adjusting a patient, one of my first patients, and um, I do SOT. That's been my technique. Um, I started as an upper cervical practitioner, but I um, started doing SOT. And I remember having this patient. She was a 30-year-old person with... Um, rheumatoid arthritis she already had hip replacement back then and knee replacement you know her joints were literally just crumbling and i yeah. couldn't stabilize her cervical spine i remember going up to larry saying larry i don't know what to do you know it's c4 it's c3 he, go, he looked at me he goes you do sot right i said yeah i said he goes she's a category two right i said yeah he goes what's category two it's all instability in the spine and pelvis he goes did you stabilize that i said no, he goes, and what, and basically said, in Larry's terms, said, what the hell are you adjusting your neck for until you stabilize your spine? And it was just like, he would always have these little pearls. He knew so much. It was just an amazing learning experience, you know, being there with him and being able to um, kind of be free to do what I want. I mean, you know, they call it the practice of chiropractic. I have to say in chiropractic school, I took advantage of the practice. Right. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about um, how you picked your technique, because I know because you said you start up at upper cervical and then you kind of switched to SOT. Like, kind of tell me your your thought so process. I am. Um, if anybody's ever taken any of my classes or anybody who knows me, I have a tinge of compulsivity in the way I do things. Um, so when I went to Sherman, I was a toggle monster, and I would toggle. I mean, literally by the third quarter, I'd be sitting classes, and my triceps would just spasm. They would just flip. You know, I used to practice everywhere on anything i would toggle eggs on drop tables and make the tables drop without breaking the eggs we would do all i mean just all kinds of toggle contests anyhow to make a long story short when i got to life um my daughter my daughter my wife um took this sot seminar just for Mm -hmm. the heck of it and um 
when she came home, she goes, I want to try this on you. And I'm like, you know, locks. I mean, you know, just, this is stupid. <laughs> so the background to that is I was a hockey goalie and I played hockey goalie all the way through chiropractic college, all the way through college from when I was 12 years old to, you know, so you're talking about 15 years of being a goalie. So there's wow. probably some issues with my spine and pelvis that <laughs> probably went unaddressed up cervically. So I was working at this place called the Barn Dinner Theater, you know, at school. So my wife, before I went to work that day, said, come on, let me just do this on you. I said, fine, trust me. Well, being a newbie at learning SOT, she actually blocked me the wrong way. She blocked me as a category one. And basically, I was at what's called a category two. I had unstable pelvis. And about a half hour getting to work, I started dragging my right leg. I couldn't walk. I literally could not walk. Never had a problem there before. Never had an issue. Never had anything I knew of. Is that I kind of looked like um, Jester from Marshall Dillon. But that's probably, you guys don't even know what that is. But anyhow, <laughs> I was living. And, <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I called her up at work. And I said, man, what did you do? I said, I can't walk. She goes, I don't know. And of course, <laughs> she did it. So I had to go to my boss. And I said, look, I really hurt my leg. I have, so I left. And I came, went back home. And we contacted the guy who had taught her the SOT. And he, you know, he told me to come over the next day and about three adjustments later, he got me walking. So my thought process was if this can do that much damage in that <laughs> short of time, it's got to be pretty powerful. So I started learning SOT and for a long time in the clinic, I would do SOT on um, the pelvis and my upper cervical work was toggle. And then over time, as I started to learn more SOT and study the dural system, I saw that they had techniques that would also address the same parameters I was looking for in the upper cervical work. So that started to basically shed away. Like we all do it in our lives. You know, you take things into your kind of toolbox and then they start to work and you see other things work better and you, you move them further down in your toolbox. But yeah, so that's kind of how I got into SOT by um, pain and suffering. <laughs> that's hilarious. I remember when uh, I was in chiropractic school, I remember I thought the activator was kind of chamois. And, right. uh, and so a buddy of mine, we were in a student clinic and I actually just did the activator and I just kind of shot him in the front of his ribs. <laughs> Yeah, and he couldn't, he couldn't breathe. And he couldn't right? breathe after. And so it was this, almost the same thing where I was like, yeah, well, thing. maybe that does have an effect on the body. <laughs> you know, as, as a note, what I can tell you is my experience is the best chiropractors that I've ever seen or ever been adjusted by, regardless of the technique, are the people who focused on their technique. Yeah. I had a very similar experience in Activator. I took it one time for a, um, a, a, a license renewal credits. And at the time, Arlen Fur was still teaching it. And yeah. his number two guy was adjusting people. At the seminar, I'm like, oh, fine, just, I mean, go ahead, hit me with that thing. And it was an amazing adjustment. And I've had that experience throughout my career, whether it be an upper cervical practitioner, an SOT practitioner, an activator, a dance, anything. People who are really focused on what they do and really own their technique, that's, it's not the technique. Yeah. I mean, the technique has its parameter, makes it very powerful, but it's how you basically embody the technique and perform that technique that I think makes a big difference in chiropractic. Yeah, that's huge. So, yeah. you, so you graduate from chiropractic uh, school, and then where did you go from there? So I went. The first thing we did. So we graduated from chiropractic school, and um, we uh, decided we got married when we were in school um, yeah. for a number of reasons. One that we loved each other. Two that at the time at life, um, if you were married couple, you only had to pay one and a half tuition. So we thought that would be a good idea because we we're going to get married anyhow. Nice. Um, so we got married twice. I've been married twice to the same woman. And <laughs> we ended up, um, we were pregnant also. So I wanted to stop my own practice. And we wanted to come back to New England area because that's where my wife was from. And I'm from New York. 
And since we were pregnant, I decided to associate for a while because I thought it would be crazy to open up. She was seven and a half months pregnant when she graduated school. Oh, wow. So, yeah. And so we came up to New England and we ended up in Boston because it was basically close to halfway between our two families. And we thought we want to be close to family, but we want to be far enough away that they have to call before they visit. <laughs> that's a good and call. <laughs> I, and I wanted to be from near a city. And she went to school in Boston for a while. So that's kind of how we ended up in this area. It was like, let's try it. You know, it was one of those things. Let's give it five years and see how it goes. And it's 37 years later. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. So we had, yeah. So she was pregnant. So I associated with a, uh, what I did is I went and got the SOT directory and I found all the SOT doctors in the Massachusetts, Boston area. And I interviewed with all of them and I ended up with this uh, man named Tom DeVito in Acton. And what's really funny, because you mentioned Activator, he was a big, he was an SOT doc and all his friends were, and some of his friends I'm still friends with, but he had just switched over to Activator. Oh. Yeah, it was really, so he had some SOT stuff. He did some blocking, but most of his work was Activator. So, which was great because I got to do my whole SOT gig and he deactivated, but I also had his um, expertise because he did know the technique, even though he wasn't using. So he also referred me a lot of patients and stuff. So I, I made it there for about five or six months and I ended up leaving only because his associate contract just wasn't enough for me to live on. And right. I was building a nice practice. So we opened up um, Ron Oberstein, you know, Ron? Yes. Right. Ron and I actually took our boards together in Massachusetts. I don't remember if it was his cousin or something actually lived in the town in Wells and we were both looking, Ron practiced in Massachusetts for a while. Yeah. Um, and we were both looking for Brexit at the same time. And he ended up opening up in a town called Lexington, which we were looking at, but being narrow minded back then, we went, oh, he just opened up. We can't open up there. So his, <laughs> Too much cousin, competition. <laughs> right, exactly. A competition, you know, it's just small minded thinking back then. But regardless, his, Cousin, I think it was, lived in the town where I am now, Wellesley, and said, hey, there's this office space that just opened up. Why don't you check it out? So we did. We went over there, and the place had just been. It was in addition to a, a small office building. So we took it. No one ever been in. There was a basically open rectangle, and we signed the lease contract, and I've been there for 37 years. We've taken more office space in the building, but that was my original original place. Um, so, yeah, so that's how we ended up there. Just That's awesome. So when you first started, because again, we, we I kind of like to talk the full gamut from starting practice yeah. all the way up to leadership and giving yeah. back. Like, how did you grow? Like, so when you open your practice, you basically start at zero. So how did, how did you grow back then at first? Well, I had two advantages. One, I didn't quite start at zero because when I left Tom DeVita's office, I didn't take people with me. I mean, that was part of the deal, but there were people that came with me. Right. So there were people that were willing to travel, even though it was about a half hour, 40 minutes away because of the technique I did. So right. a lot of them wouldn't just go most, I mean, a large percentage just saw Dr. DeVita, but because he did activator and I did SOT, some of them still wanted that care. And the other thing I did, you might notice that I like to talk. So <laughs> we did lectures. Nancy would set up at the time because she had just had a baby, would set up lectures. I would talk to anything, Kiwanis Club, um, Italian American Club. I went to gyms. I became chiropractor for certain gyms. There were all kinds of gyms, like things called Joy of Movement and Gloria Stevens and a, so I became, I, I was into running. I was been a runner most of my life. Um, so I became the chiropractor for the Middlesex Track Club, the Framingham Track Club. And I would lecture literally five to seven times a month. I would do evening lectures, Shackley. A friend of mine was a Shackley distributor. So I'd lecture and have people come in. I'd go to races and I would set up a booth. And my CA would do, we do blood pressure and spinal screening. Because blood pressure pulled people over. So we had some electronic blood pressure cuff. Yeah. They take their blood pressure and I would do spinal screenings at the races and I would give them, then offer them complimentary um, exams, you know, and 
They say I got really good at spinal screenings, saying things like, wow, how long has that knee been bothering you? How often do you have headaches? That right shoulder has been, a, and people would just be like, wow, that's amazing. And <laughs> You're like a fortune in. teller or something, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're like, how'd you know that? I'm like, well, you can't move your hip. I mean, when you're walking, your right arm is six inches low. I mean, it's, you know, it's not brain, it's not neuroscience. It's like you look at people and you go, man, you've got to be hurting. Yeah. Anyhow, so I did a lot of outreach that way. The other thing we did, you got to remember, there was no internet back then at all. Right. We actually did a door-to-door survey. There was a guy named Fernandez. And he basically was how to build a million or whatever practice. He had all these things and he had this survey and we'd go to door to door, ask people questions, introduce, hi, we're the new chiropractors in town. And we wheel our little daughter that would get us in. We had our daughter in this little stroller, my wife and I in this little baby, we knock on people's door, ask them the survey. At the end of the survey, we would ask them if they knew any place that we could speak or lecture to that might be interesting. Because a lot of little clubs in the, you know, our town, like even garden clubs want people to talk you know, during lunchtime and break. So we did those kind of things in the evenings. Mm-hmm. And some people invited us into our, our house and we talked about chiropractic. And I remember we did the numbers at one point, about 65 of them actually became patients, came in to experience what chiropractic was. So it was really oh. hands-on. I did lectures in my office, spinal care classes every week. Yeah. Um, so it was really just constant outreach. And we didn't, you know, as opposed to marketing email, we actually did mailings. We sent yeah. out different literature, um, we did things in the paper. Uh, we contact the newspaper. They do articles on us, um, you know, and so that was it. We would just constantly, but a minimum of, I'd say five to seven times a month, I was somewhere some night speaking about mm-hmm. chiropractic. Well, and that, I think it takes so much effort. A lot of times, uh, especially new grads, they come out and they don't realize, they think they kind of, when they graduate that you just open up and you're good, but yeah, like right. the amount of energy it takes, it's a huge amount of commitment. Oh, yeah. To, oh, to yeah. be able to do that, right? Chronic energy, I mean, it's like when someone asked me a number of years ago and we were at one point, you know, maybe thinking of moving. And I said to my wife, I said, we can move, but I'm not starting again. Yeah. Like, I don't have that energy. I'm not doing like So like we move, we retire. You know, yeah, totally. I work in someone else's office or, you know, but I'm not doing that. I mean, but it, you know, it's easier and harder now. I mean, my older daughter, um, my younger daughter works with me. She's a chiropractor as well. So it's oh, myself, yeah, my yeah. wife, my younger daughter, three chiropractors, and our staff. But my older daughter um, runs a company called the Institute for Psychology Reading, and she runs three other companies. So she's like this internet survive. And the amount she works 24-7 online wow. doing all because she gets all this marketing, all this stuff, and she teaches internet marketing. And so part of it's easy because you don't have to leave, but part of it's harder because there is so much um, – Competition, competition out there yeah. you have to stay on it we actually hired recently a woman to do some of our posting internet posting just to keep things fresh and going because my wife was doing a lot of it and she was spending hours a week just just posting tidbits you know our sem- like you know i teach seminars and yeah. even when i talk for the icpa we advertise their seminars so just advertising our seminars all over the world takes lot. so you know we have someone now who does about 15 hours a week besides what we do so there's probably i would say close to 30 hours a week of online stuff that we do now, just mostly for seminars. It's not yeah. really build the practice. Our practice is pretty self-sufficient as far as, you know, we get constant referrals. Right. But yeah. You have to keep up with everything. Yeah. If you want to. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's the thing. I think that's the piece that people, you know, sometimes people come to my practice or have come and go, Oh, oh this looks easy. This is great. Oh, that was, it's like, <laughs> no, the stuff it took behind that. Yeah. 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 You know that everybody should know that if you, if you build anything, you know, to make it perpetual emotion, there's a lot of energy. That's, you know, it's just a simple law of friction. You know, something is not in motion. It takes a lot more energy to put it in motion 
And once it's in motion, you just have to keep giving it energy to keep it in motion. It's just the, you know, the law of physics. It's the way it goes, goes yeah. Yeah. So uh, we always talk about the kind of the transition part too. So you get into practice and then you got to put all that energy in there and then all of a sudden your practice starts booming. Right. And then a lot of chiropractors end up getting burnt out or they kind of don't, uh, don't look after their self-care. Is there any time where you got a little bit burnt out when practice? Oh yeah. <laughs> Everybody actually, says that. <laughs> oh yeah. The first few years in practice, I thought I was going to die actually. I was really actually sick. But, and, but the, for me, so there's something about practicing for me that just feels like it's something I had to do. So I could be really sick. Even to this day, I could like have a flu or something and feel really off. If I go into the office, it's like a healing environment for me as well. It just changes your state. It just changes everything. And you kind of move outside of yourself. So I will, like, I will practice, you know, literally I've, uh, you know, I've dislocated shoulders. I've hurt. And, and all of a sudden I can practice and I come home and die. But <laughs> the, the point is that uh, I had people at different points in time help me reboot the understanding of what I was doing to myself. Now I still do it. I think we all do, especially if you have a fairly high volume practice. Yeah. Um, I think the thing that you really have to look at it and learn is you have to think of it as a training. So for example, when I wanted to increase my numbers in practice, I did it like if I was doing a race and let's say I ran 10 Ks and I decided I wanted to do a half marathon, I would train for it. So if I wanted to increase my numbers in practice, what we do is we start to, let's say, stack days. Yeah. Like we might see, I would focus people on a Wednesday so there'd be more people. And I do that like for a couple of weeks until I was trained to see whatever that, no, let's say it was a hundred patients that week, you know, that day. Yeah. I would train that until that became my norm. Right. You know, so it was a, it was an ability to train yourself. And then on the other end of it, I know so many chiropractors. I don't know about the, the maybe the more, um, philosophically congruent character, but I think even in that case, I know so many characters don't get adjusted. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And they don't get adjusted enough. Right. And they don't get adjusted correctly. Or they'll mm-hmm. go to like at a seminar, they'll get, you know, hey, my term is racked by somebody because there's no, you know, there's no evaluation. It's just laid down or thrown up against walls or whatever you do. You know, it's kind of like a, a shit show at some seminars watching what people do to each other. I think the adjustment is what we should be doing. I think I, Hold that if anything has a reverence for me in chiropractic, even above the philosophy, it is the adjustment. Right. So a lot of chiropractors don't get adjusted correctly. They don't get adjusted regularly. And if you're telling a patient to get adjusted, you know, once a week, once every two weeks, whatever it is, once a month for the rest of their lives, and you're not doing that, then you're being disingenuous. Yeah. And you know, so I think that's really, really important part of your healthcare. Um, I think if you tell patients to exercise, that you should exercise. I just think that you should basically. I think you should walk your talk. Totally. If you're a healthcare provider, then be a healthcare provider. Now, I'm mm-hmm. not saying I'm really good. It's like, you know, I have my vices, you know, and I like to drink sometimes, like, you know, but, and I, you know, but I, but there, but it, it's a, it's a paradigm over the years that you have to be able to take the time to be able to do the things you tell people to do. Right. And if you're not doing that, and if your, if your vision or your view of yourself, is one where you're above and beyond what you're telling people to do, then that's going to affect how your practice works and that's going to affect how people listen to you. You know, it's kind of like every, every part of my practice, the different things I got into, like when we were raising children, right? We had even before now, which I'm, you know, known as a pediatric craniopath and that's a lot what I do. Even before that, just because I had children that, and I was in that venue, I'd get tons of families. We homeschooled our kids for a while. So I had tons of homeschoolers. You know, as I said, I was a runner. 
when I did track and did a lot of running, I had a lot of people from that field. I mean, I did different things throughout my life. I did triathlons at one point. I got people from that. So for me, what I think it was is because I believe so vehemently in chiropractic and because my family believes so vehemently in it, whatever environment we're in, it was just part of our natural conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, my younger daughter, who is the chiropractor, was a gymnast. Yeah. So I got into her gymnastics and I actually became the, the trainer for a gym team for a while. And, you know, and people, you know, they would ask her what she does and she would talk about it. So it's, it's about, you know, again, walking your talk, living your truth, not your dream, but your truth. Right. Well, and that goes, and it's just for listeners out there, because a lot of chiropractors we see, they do the opposite where they do it, where they do get checked weekly and they do look after themselves, but then they recommend their patients come in once a month. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, so I mean, it can that, go both yeah, ways. Right. It goes both ways. I think, you know, that once a month thing is kind of this osmotic uh, pressure gradient that's throughout the chiropractic profession. I remember when I started practicing, that was my goal. Um, there was a guy, I don't know if you remember, um, was it Earhart? He was the, the x-ray guy, he used, you know, yeah. he was around. He Basically, he was into this once-a-month practice thing, and you know, he practiced for 17 years at the time, and he had basically a multi-maintenance practice. So my goal was to get everybody on once a month. And it was really what I wanted to do. And, that, and then as my practice and my, I guess, confrontational tolerance is the big thing, evolved, yeah. I'd say, people would say, I say, look, I get checked. My thing is about every two weeks. That's my parameter. Yeah. But it's, you're right. I check my family once a week but I get checked every two weeks. So when people ask me what maintenance care is, that's exactly what I tell them. I check my family every week. I try and get adjusted lead science every two weeks. You can do whatever you want. Right. That's my, the parameter that I think. And if someone wants to, in my office, if someone wants to schedule more than once a month, we won't schedule them in advance. We tell them just to call. Because right. I tell them I can't manage their spinal care on that kind of level. Right. So you can come in. If basically to me, that's an as-needed basis. So call if we have room, we'll fit you in. Yeah. I always use the analogy. It's like working out. I'm like, there's only so much distance between workouts you can use where you lose the cumulative benefit. Actually, that's a great one. Yeah, that, you're right. It's actually, yeah. And that's what I tell people. You, in the same thing is I tell adjustments build on each other. Yeah. So they make sure you're right. So if you want, and you know, it's the same thing. If you have a patient that come in and it's considered maintenance care and they're in the office and you know, with SOT, we have a lot of parameters to look at. And mm-hmm. so if I'm adjusting somebody and they have 10 indicators and they're coming in once a month, that's not maintaining anything but ill health. And I'll tell them that. I'll say, look, we're doing a lot more work than we should be doing. There's maintenance care. You should back off and come in, you know, two weeks or whatever it is. And you know what? At this point in my practice, nobody ever says no. Yeah. It, really, nobody ever says no. It's so rare that someone says no. And they just go, yeah, that makes sense, Doc, because, you know, I haven't been really feeling good that good this month anyhow. So, yeah, it, it, I mean, there, there is a thing. There was a... Um, I think his name was Greg Stanley. Yeah, it was Greg Stanley. Yeah. He, um, he does Whitehall management. So and yeah. he saved me financial, but he used to do practice management. He used to have a guy that did, and I took one of their seminars once. And basically they talk about confrontational tolerance, mm-hmm. which is something that you need to be on. Confrontational tolerance is not being a confrontive asshole. It's Great. being able to speak your truth to somebody and being willing to take whatever they say back at you without judgment. Right. That's what so if I say to you, look, hey, Don, you know, your spine is not holding this adjustment. I really think, you know, you're coming in every three weeks. Why don't you try every two weeks? And to just stop there and let you say what, and you say, well, you know, it's really hard for you. The money's, you know, the money's tight. Because I, I don't have payment plans in my office. If you pay me, um, the only thing we have is you can pay 10 visits at a time. And we'll give you 10%. But basically, Great. no money's an issue. Um, whatever. I say, well, you know, what I do depends on what mood I'm in. If someone tells me they can't afford it, I happen to live or practice in a town that, um, money's not an 
issue. And so if someone says to me, look, I can't afford, you know, $65 every two weeks. I'm like, I'll just look at them and say, I'm really sorry. You don't think your health is worse that much and leave and not take it on <laughs> myself because right. I know that that's not true. Right. You know, if yeah. you're, you know, you're carrying a Gucci purse and wearing a wrapper <laughs> and suit and you're driving a Mercedes, let's say it's only a Mercedes 350, I think you can afford $65. You know, right. if someone really can afford something, then we will talk to them. And my wife will, you know, say, like, we have patients who have six kids. Yeah. They're not going to be able to pay full fee because they want to come in. Literally, those people want to come in at the minimum once every two weeks, usually once a week. So, you know, I would find it hard to, what is that, of that six kids are in their 60s. So, you know, every time you walk in the office every week to put down 450 bucks, right. that would be difficult for some yeah. people. So that, but yeah, but it's, it's really, I think you're right, Don. I think it's about whatever the analogy is that worked for you. That's true for you. Mm-hmm. That, you know, and you know, if you don't do it, what you'll end up doing is hanging on to a patient a little bit longer, but they're going to disappear. Right. You know, remember, you know, who Joe Felicia was. Yeah. I know of him. I never got to meet him, but I know yeah. I've heard of him. So he was one of the original starters of Renaissance with Guy Reekman. And Joe always said, and this always holds true for me. He said, the longer you have to talk to a patient, and convince them about what you do is good for them, the short amount of time they're going to stay in your office. It's like that if your report sense. of findings ends and the first thing they ask you is how much it's going to cost, and the second thing is they start to hammer on, well, can I come in like, every, you know, maybe only two times a week or whatever, and they start doing that, it goes, the longer it takes you to convince them, the less amount of visits you're going to get. And that's always held true for me. You know, mm-hmm. people I have to explain it to that really want to understand it, they don't really want to understand it, they're just looking for a way out. It's like insurance companies saying, oh, documentation is very important for your patients. No, it's for them to find a way to not pay you. You you didn't sign this form. You didn't dot this I. You didn't check the range of motion. You know, it's the same thing that patient is doing. Well, you know, I don't understand. So, so will I feel better? You know, will my nervous system respond more? What can I expect from this? It's like, I don't know what you can expect from this. Because that's the truth. I don't know what the adjustment is going to change in your life. It's going to change something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyhow. I've, I always keep that in my head when I'm starting to do reported findings and I'm talking too long, I tend to end the conversation and say, look, this is what I do. I'll be happy to adjust you today. If you have yep. other questions, then, you know, you can email me. Otherwise, my staff's going to come in and set up your, you know, your schedule and then just go. Great. Well, that brings me to the next point, too, just because, again, we got a lot of uh, younger people listening to this podcast. Um, you said a little bit about Whitehall management helped you with your finances. Um, there's a lot of chiropractors that have like insane debt and they aren't yeah. doing that well. And, and what kind of learnings did you have about finances? So one of the things that Greg Stanley always talked about was to basically not go for what we call the third stake because you can be making a lot of money and it looks like now I came from a lower middle-class income family. Um, mm-hmm. it, we didn't have a lot of money, but, Everybody in my environment was the same, so I never felt like I didn't have a lot. And when I started making a lot of money, there's a lot of mistakes you can make, and oh, there's yeah. a lot of things of investment. The first thing that Greg Stanley ever said, I went to his first seminar in 1983, and he goes, he got up there and he goes, "Hi, my name is Greg Stanley." He goes, "If you want to be really wealthy, if you want to be very, very wealthy, like those people that you see out there that make back then it was tens of millions, now it's hundreds of millions, but you know it was 80." Because yeah. if you really want to be that kind of wealthy, leave now. You will not make that kind of money as a chiropractor. You will make good money. You will be well off. You'll have a great lifestyle, but you will not be that wealthy. So if that's what you're looking for, you're in the wrong place and the wrong profession. So we started off on a real level. 
So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not saying that chiropractors can't be very wealthy, but they have to be business people as opposed to chiropractors. So you have to basically take your expectations and put them in a normal place. Right. You see, I mean, you're making adjustments. So I don't care what you charge and how many people you, you adjust. You're not going to make $100 million a year. Oh, right. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so that's number one. Number two is that keep your investments in a place that you understand them. So if somebody walks up to you in the street and says, look, for every dollar you have in your pocket, I'm going to give you a dollar and a quarter. He said, run. They're winning. You're losing. He goes, if you don't understand how that can happen, then it can't happen. So I don't invest in anything I don't understand. Right. The other thing he said is take, always take a percentage of your income. I think now it's probably a minimum of about 20% of your income and invest it. Because if you don't invest that over the years, then when you retire, you won't be able to live the same lifestyle. Right. The other thing he also said is never live to the point where if you lose 20% of your income or 20% of your practice, that you're in desperate mode. So you should always have that buffer. So I remember the first time I wanted to buy the house I'm actually living in now, I called him up and I said, look, this is how much the mortgage is. This is how much I'm making. This is how much my office overhead is. He called me back and he said, you're fine. He goes, you can even afford another thousand dollars more a month if you wanted to do that. He was very much into numbers. So I always ran my practice and my investments by numbers. I take, yeah. I see, I, you know, I take a certain percentage. If my overhead, I'm, years ago I was having, um, there was some issues going on and my practice started to decrease a little bit. There was just some personal issues I was dealing with. I wasn't focused and yeah. I had a staff meeting. At that time I had free staff people. And I explained to him, I said, look, the practice is decreasing. You're on a bonus system. You know, you get paid when we make more money. You also have to suffer the consequences of nobody's holding up that. So I cut their, I cut their income. I cut their salaries all 5% till we got back up to that point. Not one of them quit. Because right. they understood that it was, a, it was a team and that these percentages are based on. And if you did better, if the practice did better, then I was willing to share that with you. If the practice does worse, I'm not taking all that burden. Even though, honestly, probably more if it was my fault at that point because of my lack of focus. But people can pick up the ball for you. Right. So those, you know, so it's again, and, you know, yeah, that, that's basically it. It's And keep your overhead as low as possible. Right. I'm not saying buy cheap stuff. One of the things he always said, which I always thought was amazing, was this. We all have these dreams of stuff we think we want. Let's take a boat. Because anybody who owns a boat knows it's basically just taking money and throwing it in the water. <laughs> yeah. That's what it is. Okay. And you have a lot, you can afford to throw something, but he's always said, so if you have something that you think you want, but you don't use it every day and you know, he goes rent it because if it's something that you really want and really use, then buy whatever the best is that you can afford without going over overboard with it, so to speak. He goes, so if it's something that you really want use every day, then spend as much as you possibly can on it. That, so for me, I'm into stereos. Okay. So I yeah. have a lot of audio equipment, but I use it all the time. I love it. I spend a lot. I don't, I use a boat, you know, I don't use boats much, but he basically told the story about a guy who wanted a, thought he wanted to buy a boat. So he rented this boat, he went out and when he was coming back to shore, he made a mistake and instead of throwing the throttle in reverse, he threw it into forward and he smashed into the dock. Yeah. So he got off the boat and he found, the owner was there and he goes, look, I'm really, really sorry. You know, I really made a mistake. I, you know, it was a problem. He goes, are you insured? The owner said, yeah. And he said, well, what's your deductible? And the owner said, well, my deductible is $500. So the guy gave him $500, said, I'm really sorry, and left. And the, the moral of the story is like, yeah. So now he didn't have to buy a boat. 
It wasn't his response because it was his boat. It would have cost him a lot more than that. It cost him $500. He walked away, not in debt, you know, nothing to worry about. Right. So, you know, like ha- having to have two houses. I mean, it's okay if you want to have that, but you really have to paradigm that you know that you can afford that and have a buffer that if something goes wrong, maybe you get sick, maybe something happens with one of your kids. You know, it's all, there's a lot of things in life that you're never going to know. So you need a buffer. If you don't have that buffer, then you get to the point where you're desperate. And you know what? If you're desperate in your practice and patients can feel that. Yeah. They can sense that desperation. And, you know, so so those are the, you know, I think those are the basic tenets that he taught me. Don't get involved in things you don't understand. Don't buy that third stake. Um, keep your overhead low and run your life and practice by percentages that, you know, that are um, objective, not subjective. Not like, oh, it feels like we had a really good month this month. Let's go buy. You know, I was like, well, I had a really good month this month. I made $80,000. I'm going to go buy, you know, uh, another BMW. Right. You know, next month you make 60 and the month after that you make 50 and then you can make your car payments. Great. So, oh, that's so good. That's so good. Um, so next, next phase, I also want to talk about, especially for you, how did you get into uh, uh, teaching technique? Because that's the practice growth. But how did you get into actually uh, getting into teaching? So I was lucky enough, um, you know, the major Dijonette was still alive. I mean, all the people, John Thompson was still alive. Pierce was still alive. Dijon, um, Van Rump, all the um, Goodhart, all those people who started the techniques were still alive. So I got to meet those people um, mm. and their amount of dedication was just contagious. Um, so I got into teaching technique because I went, when we moved to Sherman, when we left Sherman, went to life and I started doing SOT. At the time, Sherman was only teaching upper cervical and they were teaching toggle. There was no other technique that was allowed except, I, you know, I take that back. I think they taught Pierce. They were allowed to adjust the pelvis with, you know, drop work. But everything else was upper cervical. Yeah. So when people, friends of mine who I still kept in contact with Sherman said, um, you know, will you guys come up and teach an SOT seminar? And so I was only, I was, I think, 1980. Was I went 78? Yeah, something like 1980. So my wife, myself, and her friend, we drove up to Sherman and taught our first SOT seminar. And that was just it. It was like, wow, this was great. That was awesome. And then I started going to Omaha. Every year, Dijonet had a homecoming in Omaha. And I went there. And for me, I would see the people on the dais, and I'd see the people that were instructing. And basically, those are people I wanted to be like. Right. So as soon as I could... I became a table instructor and then I got certified by Dijonet. I got certified by Sourcy and I got certified by Soda USA. So again, my little OCD pattern is once I started learning, I couldn't stop. And, you know, like I said, every year in Sourcy, you would start out as table instructors. So there would be a main instructor and there'd be hundreds of people at their seminars. Back in those days, actually, believe it or not, you get a hundred people at a technique seminar, not just at a marketing seminar. Yeah, well, so yeah. there'd be hundreds of people, and they'd be all broken up into tables of ten or twelve a piece, and we'd all have a table instructor that would follow the lead instructor. And I just got really into it. And then my goal was to become a lead instructor, you know. So I just kept moving through that process, and then I wanted to be on the board, so I was on their, you know, I was president of their research board. And then, so the USA was formed, and they asked me to come teach with them and be on their board. So I started doing, and I set up. I actually opened up a company called Regional Seminar Management Program to run their seminars for them. I did mm. that. Then I became their president. So it just was basically something that really spoke to me. Um, yeah. And it was really that's that first, it was like that dip in the water, you know, that first time they said, come to Sherman and teach us. And we did it and it was fun and we could do it. It just became something. And as I said earlier, my thing about chiropractic is the technique. 
Right. You know, you have to be able to produce what you're telling people you produce. It's great to have the philosophical construct of how amazing chiropractic is and changing the nervous system and, and, and the entire thing and connecting innate to what universal, whatever, however you want to, but you must have some parameter to do that. It can't just right. be word of mouth. And our venue is the technique. That's what, that's the application that we do. Mm. So for me, that was really simple. When did you start with the ICPA? 2004, I think it was. Mm -hmm. Before, yeah. So I let, I was, I left Saucy. I got, I had 20 years of sort of with Saucy in 99. I went to Soda USA in 2000. I was teaching with them when Peter had approached me because I, I, I started their pediatric program with Soda USA. Uh -huh. well, actually, Saucy, I wrote the first pediatric program and Peter approached me. Peter could walk in. Yeah. Um, and he's the one who got me into it. I think it was 2004 was the first time I taught in Toronto. Uh, uh, with John Thompson was right. Um, you know, at the time, a genie had taken over the ICPA. Hmm, cool. Yeah. And, and so was old enough to know that I was using transparency is not PowerPoint. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. It was that long ago. So, uh, like, what what is your um, expertise right now? So, like, I know you do your own seminars. What are the kind of things that you like to teach? And then we'll talk a little bit about like how people can find out more about. Okay. So, um, I mean, I've always taught my own seminars, even when I taught with the ICPA. Yeah. One of the reasons I left the ICPA was only because we were teaching like 24 to 28 weekends a year, a year. plus yeah. running a practice. And it just got, it does get really too much. Yeah. So I have about 14 different seminars I teach right now. What we're teaching, I heard you mention at Boston is where we have a certification series. It's through NYCC. It's a pediatric certification series. Three 16-hour seminars. First one is spinal adjusting for a pediatric. Second one is cranial adjusting for pediatrics. And the third one is clinical integration. There's actually going to be one that one in Boston. So that's a new series that I put together. Um, that's going to be running again next year in 2020. Our standard pediatric seminar that we teach all over the world is a 16-hour pediatric spinal and cranial seminar. So we do 12 hours of hands-on, only four hours of lecture. And it's 16 hours Friday afternoon all day Saturday and all day Sunday. That's our standard pediatric. We take that. We're going to be in Barcelona in March. We've taught we're going to be used, and we teach that one all over the place. Cool. Um, that's the 16-hour. Then I also teach SOT, so for adults. So I'm teaching one of those in December. Um, I also teach a pregnancy seminar. That I all, I'll be teaching that one in Toronto. So I have about – actually, if you go on the website, you can see that teach, there's about 14 seminars that we teach. I would say three, four, five – Six of them are our staples. The others are more requests. Like people say, I want to learn um, soft tissue work or I want to learn certain techniques. So if you want us to come to your area, then you contact my wife, Dr. Nancy Watson. Um, if you're, you can get us a certain amount of chiropractors, like what's happened in Barcelona, they wanted us to come. We said we need to get 20 chiropractors. I think we're up to 40 already and we'll, we'll fly there. So those are the seminars. So you can request any ones, but the standard ones are the 16-hour spinal cranial pediatrics the certification program, which is three 16 hours. Yes, a T seminar, which is also 16 hours, and that's all three categories. And then there are the pregnancy one is 16, and that kind of basically how to deal with the pregnant patient. It uses some SOT protocols, but mm -hmm. it also incorporates other type of adjusting protocols for that. I would say those are the meat and potatoes of our seminars. Yeah, and, and so just just as a curiosity, if you if you're say just like a full spine regular, like a diversified right. adjusting chiropractor, and you're interested in getting your work, what seminar would you recommend to do first? Sixteen hour, the regular sixteen hour one is a lot of people who think do things like in constant activate anything comes because eight hours of that is cranial, 
Yeah. There's only four hours of that, that spinal and the spinal part is about just addressing the dermal system to clear out the meninges, to open it up so that the cranial work is available. So, so basically if you want to add to your practice, yeah. that seminar adds cranial work about, you know, beginning and intermediate cranial work and it also adds some spinal dural techniques, which you may not have if you have a structurally oriented technique. Yeah. So that's what most people will take if they don't have the base. So I'm not trying to make people SOT practice. That's what people always get concerned. You know, well, I don't know any SOT. The pediatrics is not SOT. You don't block a two-month-old. Like, you can't put a giant blocker into a two-month-old pelvis. So though my baseline is in SOT, and I use some of the anatomy and physiology that major did, the techniques I use are offshoots of stuff that he did because he basically didn't teach a lot of pediatrics. Um, right. You know, he graduated chiropractic school in 1924, so it wasn't really like, you know, let's teach pediatrics. Right. Um, so, yeah, so the, it's SOT-based, but you don't have to have any SOT knowledge. So we get a lot of people who have different techniques who want to expand their practice or who don't even work with kids yet. I've had, I have people who come to my practice who have been in practice 20 years, and they're tired of adjusting, you know, the same way. Or in some cases, they're just, their shoulders are breaking down. They're, you know, if they do high-velocity, low-amplitude adjusting, yep. even drop work, it starts to take its toll on your body. They still want to practice, so they want to deal with pediatrics. They don't have a baseline for that. So a lot of people who have been in practice 20, 25 years, that guy in practice 30 years, who come to our pediatric seminar so they can start to add that their practice. If they want to go further, then after they've done that maybe for a year, they can then take our certification class and, and get into the, the whole pediatric program. Oh, that's awesome. That's cool. All right, well, um, in closing, I always like to ask, I always ask a Terminator question. And the Terminator right. question is in the, in the one of the movies, Terminator, uh, yeah. he could time travel. So he could go back and talk to his younger self. So I was wondering if you could zip back in time and talk yeah. to yourself when you're just like maybe in chiropractic school and, and give yourself, okay. or, or, or at a time where you might have needed it the most, um, what kind of advice would you give your younger self? Maybe be more willing to speak your truth earlier in time before you got the, you know, the unconscious competence. Yeah. Uh, I think starting earlier to speak my truth. Um, I'm telling you, this is professional. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not airing my personal laundry today. No, no, but, but sometimes but it is because yeah. personal effects yeah. professional. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's speak your truth even before you're confident enough to do that. Like, because that gives you, I think that would be the thing that I kind of let, you know, I let certain things slide because of either fear or um, I did certain things in practice as far as trying to hang on to patients in a disingenuous way, like trying to meet their needs as opposed to what I really thought they needed chiropractically. Right. Um, and my experience is, is that it ends up being an uncomfortable and a bad situation for both of you because mm -hmm. you're hanging on for the wrong reason. It's like being in a bad relationship. It's like hanging right. on to a relationship for a bad reason. Um, so I think when before, you know, maybe the first five or so years of practice, when you're hungrier, you're more desperate, you think yeah. that's a better way to build it. And it's not, it's the quality of your patients, not the quantity. Because right now, I mean, 80, 85% of my patients is maintenance. Right. You no, know, it's like, I don't have to really do much. We right. take your patients and a lot of the overflow my daughter sees, but it's like patients just come in, you know, and that's because of the quality of it. And I take care of actually, we feel like we have one family that's four generations, but I take care of 
dozens of families who are three generations of care that have taken care of, you know, I take care of all three generations. Yeah. So it's a self-perpetuating thing. And I think that's because those people, they don't have to get what you get, but they have, you have to be honest with them so they can take as much of that information in and use it for them and come in. Like, you know, if someone's, I have patients who've been coming in for 35 years. Right. That's you know, awesome. We're getting old together. Which kind of sucks because then they start complaining about their knees and their ankles and their hips. Like, I can't do anything. <laughs> Well, and I think that that's super important to realize, though, because if people were to meet you right now uh, with your certainty and how direct right. you are right. and all that stuff, they might not even known that you ever were like that. And so people exactly. who are early off in practice are experiencing that challenge. So it's Absolutely. nice to hear from leaders who have, are very certain and that know that they had that challenge as well when they were starting. You know, there's, I just want to um, tell you, so my daughter practiced with us. So she's very confident about what she does because she grew up with chiropractic. But I see how she gets attached to patient outcome, not only if they get well, but how they respond to her. That's the other thing, it's how they respond to her. And I, I was having a talk with her the other day because now, back in my day, we used to get these yellow pages patients, and they were always the worst patients. They'd find you on the yellow page. And now it's Google patients. It's the same thing. Right. And she, and she said, Dad, I always have trouble with this patient. And she, you know, she showed me this older woman who wanted to come in, wanted to adjust it on her first visit, which we do not do. We do mm. an evaluation. She goes, I, I tend to not be able to hold on to these patients. I said, well, the first thing you're looking at that's wrong is you don't want to hold on to them because they're just people you want to give them the information. I said, so you need to, and it's hard for, as a younger practitioner to let go of the, the outcome. Right. So tell them the truth. Speak. I said, I said, this is what you tell her. Stop trying because what she's doing is giving her a spinal care class is what she does sometimes on that. I see a lot of young people do that. In their adjustment right. time. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so, so don't give us Monica. This is what we do. This is the parameter, you know, and, and we like to help you. And it's that ability to not be attached, not in a negative way, not saying not being attached by not being kind, but not being attached to how they respond to the information you give them. Because it's not a personal attack. It's how they respond. You don't know what's going on in their lives. Maybe they just lost a, you know. So yeah. that's the other piece. So when I look back is, I, I was teaching a seminar once and I was talk, talking about how to do report of findings. And I said, give your information, whatever your technique parameter is, whatever your philosophical construct is, you know, you lay that down and then allow the patient to respond to that. And however they respond to that, don't take it personally. And some guy raised his hand and he said, Dr. Rose, that sounds great. I said, how do you do that? And I said, how old are you? He said, 35. I said, 15 years. <laughs> that's how you do it. You have to get to a point where your life, where you do that. Right. So yeah, yeah. So that's the other thing, young practitioners. Is if you, as long as you've been honest, and as long as you've done what you could do to the best, and you're going to get better. Yeah. So your report of findings are going to improve. Everything you do is going to improve. Be patient with yourself. Don't beat yourself up. But always, and this I owe to my father. Um, you know, he always said to me, he said, someone's going to be stronger than you, smarter than you, faster than you, better looking than you, taller than you. You know, always going to be. He goes because that doesn't matter. He goes, you do what you do the best you can. So when you go home at night, you can sleep. And that's what I tell young people to do. Do what they can, the best they can. If they feel like they're failing in an area, they have a weakness in their philosophy, they have a weakness in their technique, then get off your ass and go out and learn how to do whatever it is that you can't do better. Because, you know, it's, it's philosophy, science, and art is the triad of chiropractic. Any point there that you're weak in is going to be your linchpin. If time you, every time you fix that point, you'll tear another linchpin off. Your practice and your life will grow. Right. That. Well, that's cool. 
All right. Well, I, I thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast. Oh, I really appreciate it. I, I, I love talking to you. Um, I, I just like to leave the last couple of minutes to, to my guests. We have chiropractors all over the world, uh, in Canada and UK and Australia, New Zealand, all that yep. kind of stuff. And, and just what kind of words of wisdom would you like to leave uh, the, chiropr- the listeners with today? I think that was just it. Basically just, you know, um, be honest, yeah. be forthright. Um, be willing to be objective with where your weaknesses are and be willing to work on those weaknesses. It's really as simple as that. And, and yeah, don't be so attached to how patient, I mean, we all have the same needs. We all want to be heard. We all want to be loved. We all want to be respected. So, so when you're doing a report of findings, if you're standing on the patient and pointing them and basically shoving your philosophical construct down their throat, in my opinion, yeah. That's not a great thing. I mean, we, I live in an area that's highly educated because it's, you know, it's massive. There's Harvard's near me and MIT and, you know, just a whole list of all. So, you know, people are not used to following blindly. Mm-hmm. So that was something I had to learn to. So that's, that's it. You know, just be honest, find, be objective with yourself. And when I say be objective, that's not judgmental of yourself. Be objective with yourself and see what you need to improve and be willing, that's the other thing, to take the time to improve it. Improving your skill set is not sitting online and improving your marketing skill set and getting more people into your office. Great. Oh, totally. So uh, if someone wanted to get a hold of you, uh, where could they do that or find more information about your seminars? Just kind of give us all your contact info. Right. So the easiest place to find out about my seminars is on Dr. Dr. Martin, M-A-R-T-I-N, Rosen, R-O-S-E-N.com. Yep. That is my website for professional website for seminars. Same email address, it's drmartinrosen at gmail.com. Do that. If you want to find out more about my office, my office uh, website is Wellesley, W-E-L-L-E-S-L-E-Y, Cairo, C-H-I-R-O.com. And their email address is wellesleycairo at gmail.com. So professionally, the Dr. Martin Rosen, um, if you want to find out more about how our office runs, just for your curiosity, see what my webpage looks like, go to Wellesley. And um, yeah, we have dozens, we have DVDs, um, manual books. I've written a couple of pediatric books and we have, I think 14 or 16 different DVDs on techniques as well. They're also in streaming video. You don't have to buy the DVD. You can stream them. All that information is on the website where we're going to teach and how to get us to come teach in your areas all on the Dr. Martin Rosa website. That's awesome. And for those that are listening to this in your car, uh, we'll put that in the show notes at www.drdonmcdonald.com. So if you're driving in your car and you're trying to write all that down, we'll put that in the show notes that, so you can just click on it to link through. So thank you very much again, sir, for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And for all you guys out there, I know you would have got a lot of information on that. I did. And uh, if you can try to make it to uh, one of his seminars, because uh, yeah, he, he, he just looked after Brandy one day and just seeing him do his stuff, you could tell he's a master and he made a huge difference for Brandy. So uh, I want to thank you for that as well. Thanks a lot. My pleasure, Don. Say hello to Brandy for me too. I will. And so everybody, until next time, we'll see you on the Vitality Shift for Chiropractors. I just changed it. So have yourself a great day. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you've received value from this episode, please share this with a fellow chiropractor and take some time to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever your favorite place is to listen to podcasts. If you're interested in learning more about our programs and events, please visit www.thevitalityshift.com or connect with me on Facebook. I would love to hear from you. So until next time, Dr. Don out.